Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 3rd, 2021. Happy May for all of you. May Day, which isn't celebrated in the United States, but is celebrated elsewhere. Um, the model for this show, as regular viewers and listeners will know, is we find a published author with a new book, and we talk to them about that book. Um, uh, it's uh, it's a literary conversation very often on Keenon. So we're changing things slightly now. We're going full future. Uh, we're imagining a book, or at least imagining a book that is in the process of being written. Uh, my guest today is Seth Goldenberg. He's, I'm calling him a futurist. He describes himself as an entrepreneur and thought leader. He's in the process of writing a book for Penguin Random House that I think um, is going to come out next year. That's the plan. Um, and it's a book, uh, it's a book entitled currently, uh, radical curiosity. Uh, Seth. Yes. I know that you are in the process of writing this book. Um, and I am going to be all radically curious about the book. Tell me about <laughs> radical curiosity. What's the book about? Um, and curiously enough, why are you willing to talk about it when it isn't actually published yet? <laughs> well, thanks so much for having me, Andrew. Uh, I'm I'm honored to have such a conversation. I think, to your point, uh, actually, for for the central process of radical curiosity, questioning is the center of value creation. So the process is the project. The process is the product. Uh, so it seems apropos that we're having a conversation while the book is unfolding uh, in real time, rather than it being a concluded uh, conclusion, right? Um, radical curiosity for me is, uh, it, it situates itself somewhere post-design thinking. I come from an art and design background, uh, but we draw in my studio a kind of eclectic mix of schools of thought. We draw upon education, philosophy, cultural change, activism, but at its core, we've really uh, kind of professionalized a methodology for how to ask essential questions. How to ask a central question. Well, uh, you describe yourself in your bio um, as a radically curious entrepreneur and author who uses design thinking and storytelling to catalyze long-term social innovation. Uh, very briefly, what long-term social innovation are you trying to, to borrow one of your words, catalyze in this book? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we've, we've been privileged here in my studio to work across all kinds of key social cause issues from uh, systems of education to environment and climate change to public health. And we think that uh, much of business uh, has the opportunity to use a variety of competitive disciplinary tools to create more money. 
but there's often not the same level of rigor applied to what we call social innovation to a more public social sector. And so we try to blend the best of business practices and cultural change strategies so that there's a 10-year or almost a 100-year, an idealized century-scale cycle of thinking. You know, we think about generational time. So when we're working with an educational community or a state government's public health sector, we're asking questions and helping them uh, define a methodology for leaders to think about questions that are in a multi-decade scale rather than the kind of daily ticker tape or the quarter cycle. Seth, you've been generous enough to show me the outline of the book. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it will change once the editors get their hands on it. You may change some of the titles. Uh, but what is exactly radical curiosity? What's the difference between radical curiosity and curiosity? Yeah. No, I, I appreciate that question. I mean, so and, and I know in the in in the plan, um, uh, that's the intro, which it always needs to be in a book because if it's entitled "Radical Curiosity," you need to define your terms. Absolutely. I mean, right now we're working on a uh, a kind of subtitle, if you will, that is the operating definition of the term as we've been defining it. So, we when you say "we," is this your team? Is this you and your publishers? No, no, sorry. Yeah, I apologize. Uh, I always say team because I work with so many collaborators. In my studio, we have a core uh, staff. We're a kind of research think tank. And then we have lots of people who are uh, SMEs that we bring into these dialogues. So I always this think is, about- uh, This is uh, Epic Decade. Is this your, your, your think Indeed. tank? Epic Decade is, is my think tank studio. It's our home base. So we, we think about things as collaborative and community-based. Yes. Uh, well, but, but, back, but back to the question of what is yeah. radical curiosity, Seth? Yeah, so radical curiosity is a practice of questioning commonly held beliefs to imagine flourishing futures. So what that means to me is that uh, we have to question the very root of things, uh, not just, as you suggest, a kind of, uh, say, childish or youthful curiosity where there's a kind of unintentional wandering and, oh, what does this do? A kind of uh, sensory kind of curiosity. This is a much more intentional advanced practice in which we have to question now more than ever uh, a kind of uh, set of assumptions around the human condition. What is health? Uh, what, what is happiness? What is a, a relationship? What is gender? All these core ideas that were maybe commonly held wisdom for the past several centuries are experiencing such significant flux that radical curiosity is a kind of inquiry and investigation to look at the roots and the histories of these concepts, understand how contemporary society is evolving and updating our common wisdom in order to imagine a very different future. Uh, in, in your beginning, uh part of the book, uh, when you're defining what curiosity, you say curiosity is an endangered species. I mean, it's curious what that means. And then you say we're in the in-between times. Um, 
what does that mean? We're between what kinds of times? Is it modernity and post-modernity, industrialization and post-industrialization, analog and digital? What what are these in-between times? Yeah, I, I think uh, one of the terms I'm starting to toy with is this idea of a cultural interregnum. I think of an interregnum as that in-between time, right? Often used- between in two, uh, An interregnum means between rulers. So who are the rulers? The, what was the past ruler and who might the future ruler be of our cultural times? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there, there may not be singular monoliths and it's not as uh, kind of precise as, well, at this moment, the automobile. I think that um, e- even the idea that we are collectively working on writing the next chapter in a way that feels um, hyper-connected, participatory, distributive power in such a way that has uh, is new beca- in terms of you know, multi-century scale. And so it feels as though uh, we've inherited certain legacy narratives. There are institutions, there are models that we're born into. And within the past 50 years and the next 50 years, there's a century scale kind of project in which the democratization of tools enables us to collectively author what the new emerging narratives may become. Right? Are you saying, um, because the, 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 the first substantial chapter in the book is why isn't curiosity thriving? Mm-hmm. Is your argument that we're living in incurious times because of this interregnum, because we're stuck between two world systems? I, th- I think you're, you're spot on. I would say the reason I describe curiosity as a kind of endangered species, I think there's a, there's a in, just at the conclusion of a legacy narrative, before an emergency, or excuse me, an emergent narrative uh, begins, there's a kind of comfort, almost a kind of security blanket in which maybe we stop asking such essential deep questions. Uh, We accept the transactional reality that we're living in. And uh, it's a kind of rallying cry to uh, demand and hope for and help codify why curiosity and a radicalized curiosity is so important. And an assessment as to what are the uh, unexpected systematic causes that is limiting curiosity from thriving, as, as you see in that, that section. So first, you know, uh, the, the kind of flow of the book is to say, let me introduce to you the idea of radical curiosity, a deeper kind of questioning, really just, uh, uh, you know, the, the uh, welcoming of a new kind of philosophy in everyday life, to, to embrace philosophy in contemporary times. Uh, and if we understand that this is a way that all human meaning is made, uh, isn't it interesting what that next section begins to do is to point out different areas of societal systems that maybe really handicaps the freedom for questioning to, to flourish, right? Seth, uh, are there models for the, the radically curious person? Um, you mentioned philosophy. Uh, are you planning on writing about Socrates, for example, or Plato, or Aristotle, or uh, or, 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 or Einstein? Um, 
Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, Einstein's a great inspiration to us, actually. We, we have a model that we use here in the studio that has always been something I've been a big advocate for. Is that why you have a hairstyle like Einstein? <laughs> right. He's, he's a, a distant uncle in my dreams, right? Um, yeah, no, I, I think, you know, there, there's always that controversial uh, quote that, uh, that is simulated about 55-minute edition, right? Uh, 55 minutes. He was asked famously, whether it's true or not, mythology will tell, but if you had one hour to solve a problem, how would you proceed? And his answer was, I'd spend 55 minutes figuring out if I was asking the right question. And if I knew the right question, I could answer it in the remaining five minutes. And the way I interpreted that is for me that 55 minutes of 60 minutes is a 90% kind of scale of a problem framing process, focusing on, are we even asking the right question? You know, sometimes I use as an example, you know, we first started doing research around questioning, you know, about 10 years ago. And, you know, at the time here in the U.S., the Obamacare uh, debate was at its peak and it was uh, entering the Supreme Court just as we were holding a conference. And I posed a question to the audience in the conference, really, what is the inquiry? What is the question that Obamacare is about? For the thousands and thousands of pages it's really about who pays for health. It's not a question of what is health and what might we want health to become in the 21st century. And so I think sometimes we lack the discipline to really understand what are the questions we're asking? Are we asking the right questions? And how do we go about constructing better questions so that those inquiries yield a, a much higher impact in the end? Seth, speaking of health, um, in your section on why you believe at least curiosity isn't thriving, uh, you talk about the crisis of mental health. We had Roy Richard Grinker on the show a couple of months ago. He's written a, an excellent book called uh, Nobody's Normal, How Culture mm -hmm. Created the Stigma of Mental Illness, about the history of mental illness over the last couple of hundred years. Have we all gone mad, Seth? Is, 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 is mental illness afflicting all of us? And is that um, not allowing us to, 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 to think in a, in a curious way? I've always assumed that mentally, I wouldn't say ill people, but mentally challenged people like Nietzsche often are, are, are the most curious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think even the distinction of what is mental health uh, what is a condition? What is normal or not normal? It's a great inquiry. I mean, my, my entry point to it is, um, I, I like your frame of have we all gone mad? Uh, my version of that might be, has the production economy, our obsession with production led to a kind of religion in which we're not even listening to our own mental health. Whether we're, whether we're in good or bad mental health is almost numb to our commitment to not being able to get off the merry-go-round of a, an economic construct, right? And so the question for me might be, um, what has resilient value? And how, maybe even to your point of raising health, uh, I, I thought you were going to go towards the pandemic, but, you know, in this existential public health moment, I think we've all been confronted with, 
uh, reorienting and reprioritizing what matters and how to redefine value both for ourselves and for the organizations that we work with in our, in our daily labor, right? Yeah, you're right, Seth, that we are in, in times of COVID uh, questioning everything. Um, one of your early sections is on learning, and you have um, a very intriguing section called uh, Education is Too Big to Fail, Maybe It Should. Uh, you at um, Epic Decade are kind of in the business, I guess, of education. We've had a lot of shows recently about the failure of universities. We even had um, the excellent critic Deverian Baldwin on the show talking about how universities are literally plundering our cities. Um, is that the core crisis in intellectual terms of our age, that the institutions that are supposed to be both radically curious and mm. triggering teaching, I don't know if you can teach radical curiousness, are failing, and, and, and those are mostly the universities? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I do think uh, it's a great point. I think university is, is a, an important place to begin. I, I might even go a little bit earlier into a, here in the U.S., you know, K to 12 and, and uh, mm. pre, pre-college tracks. But I think that you're right, that the institutionalization of education is, is what I take aim at in that, in that section. Uh, some of the conclusion becomes uh, just uh, the, the, um, the, the desire for, for living and for lived experiences as a much greater kind of uh, traveling nomadic theater of a classroom uh, than, than any institution can ever simu- stimulate or simulate. And I, I think what, what you seem to imply is related to my own position is that uh, radical curiosity as itself a practice of the creation of new knowledge, right? I mean, research, we, we have commercialized research. We have productized research to, into the production economy, uh, but speculative research, uh, blue sky research, research at its greatest uh, level, in my opinion, is a kind of uh, search for the creation of new knowledge in, in the most speculative sense uh, that may not have uh, a kind of productized outcome. And I think to your point, uh, I think universities in their need to become businesses uh, have uh, leaned into production economy and out of radical curiosity, when in fact, of course, the earliest of them uh, were curiosity epicenters of civilizations. And so I think we do need to reimagine what do we want school to be in the next century? Uh, what do we want learning to look like? And you know, there's a section right about that is called unlearning, right? Uh, it's maybe as important to unlearn the inherited legacies as it is to learn existing knowledge. Seth uh, is one, someone who can help us unlearn Willy Wonka. I know you have a section um, on Willy Wonka at the moment in, in the book. Is Willy Wonka uh, someone who can lead us to unlearn? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think uh, we've, we've found, you know, I, I mentioned I, my background, I actually started as an oil painter. I'm an artist originally. Uh, attended Rhode Island School Design and my, my degree is as a painter. And I think art and the idea of wonder and imagination and humor and joy, uh, these are actually much greater catalysts 
for uh, bringing in a lifestyle of curiosity than, than uh, maybe we give them credit for. And ironically, uh, we use them as inducements for rethinking business value creation. I think business has gotten way too serious and there's such a focus on the transaction and the outcome that we forgot to build a little bit of that Willy Wonka magic into the process. We, we had the pleasure of our lives to work with uh, Apple and Apple retail, Apple stores. And we uh, we modeled uh, the launch of a, of a very a high profile kind of secret handshake society project there uh, called uh, Dewdrop. That was the name of the program. But we invited people by sending out Willy Wonka golden tickets. And I think the experience of how we do what we do is equally, if not sometimes more important than where the work lands. And I think sometimes we forget that. And, and I think Willy Wonka would make a great CEO. Seth, some people might be watching this and thinking, this guy's just in the business of marketing, of selling stuff. There's nothing radical. There's nothing curious about him. He's just a marketer. Well, how would you respond mm -hmm. to that? And the, the, the models you use of sending out invites to an Apple event using Willy Wonka, it might be clever from a commercial point of view, but it, it speaks nothing of, of genuine radical curiosity. Yeah, I think I, I think it's not the first time we've heard that, and I certainly understand uh, the sentiment. I think uh, the world of creativity has been commandeered by marketing because it's a service tool of a production economy, once again. So I think actually there's a little bit of a, a almost an illiteracy to understand the creative economy, the creative discourse, and the different ways in which uh, art and creative culture are a part of uh, both a kind of deep activist uh, cultural change uh, approach, as well as a valuable day-to-day -day activity in business. Uh, for us, we, we only take on big social cultural questions. So even if we work with a very well-known, uh, very attractive brand like Apple, uh, you know, the questions are much deeper. It's, we're not doing a, we're not, we're not creating a, a kind of a marketing gimmick. In fact, just to be clear, the only people who saw those uh, Willy Wonka Golden tickets were internal employees. And the project that, that, uh, that we did with Apple was about how to understand the culture of creativity of one of the world's most valuable companies because the DNA of working at Apple uh, is, is not necessarily very codified. Uh, and we find this with a lot of organizations. When an organization has an incredible zeitgeist that is doing powerful and valuable things, sometimes people aren't even sure why and how this is happening. So uh, uh, that project was about working with employees from across every different department at Apple stores, trying to understand kind of the genie in the bottle of how to capture the culture of creativity. Uh, Seth, another of your sections is on youth. Uh, sounds like a sort of a, a Bob Dylan song. May we never grow up um, is, is the first section in youth. We had the... Um, uh, the, the the generational warrior, I don't know if she'd use those terms, I would, mm -hmm. Jill Filopovich, um, who's a great critique of, of boomer generation, is one of the problems, though, with the boomer generation of people of your age, that you're refusing to grow up. Rather than creating a cult of youth, 
you need to grow up. You need to shave your beard and, and wear a suit and tie and behave your age. <laughs> wow, interesting. I mean, that's um, not my opinion, Seth, of course. I'm just suggesting <laughs> uh, Jill might say that. Blame everything on Jill, right? Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not sure that any of those uh traditions, uh, you know, which tradition is right and wrong? I mean, you know, uh, Steve Jobs barely wore a tie, a tie in his life. And, uh, you know, he, he uh, created one of the most important businesses in modern history. I'm not sure that there's a, a code of where growing up works and where it doesn't work. It's funny you reference Bob Dylan. It's actually a bit of a head nod to Peter Pan. Uh, right, that of of not growing up, and I think the t the tie to radical curiosity is that there is a childlike awe about how children arrive into the world and are refreshingly arriving to first experiences with such embrace and such uh, inspiration uh, that we would like to maintain as a kind of aliveness in leaders. And, and I think it's an advocation for um, not becoming an adult that loses uh, the zeitgeist of the thirst for their lives. So you're suggesting that youth um, does create curiosity because, of course, one could argue that the most curious are people who have experience. The older you become, the more radically curious you become. Uh, is there an age connection with radical curiosity? Well, I think youth to me uh, is a state of mind, not a particular age. And so one of the reasons that section is titled youth is that I'm actually interested in reconceptualizing youth as the way in which we show up, not a particular, say, adolescent time period in development. And so I think a boomer, uh, a wise elder, to your point, you know, how we show up with curiosity is itself a way in which the notion of youth as a metaphor of being willing to and excited by and ferociously investigating, right? I mean, one person, I just give a, a, a quick example, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of uh, the chef Jose Andres, many of us uh, are. I mean, his presentation of food and questioning, wait a second, you know, can air have a taste? Can this happen? Can this kind of deep hunger for not accepting how things are, but he is absolutely youthful, even and especially propelled by all of his experience that he's wielding to reignite the playground of what we've kind of contained, we think food is. Well, Seth, I think you've done a good job uh, as a writer who, uh, who is working with air. You don't have a book, but you've sold me on the idea of radical curiosity. And I'm sorry to keep on using this pun. I can't think of anything else. I'm radically curious to read it. It's going to be out next year. We'll have to have you back on the show when it's written, when it's all fully yeah. formed. You've been very brave to appear on this show without the book. <laughs> Uh, I've never done this before, but I think it's a pretty interesting idea. Uh, you're in Rhode Island at your studio at the moment in these strange COVID times where we're still not really allowed out. Uh, given that we can't read your book yet, are there any other books that you would suggest people read to get them in the mood 
for a taster for Seth Goldenberg's Radical Curiosity, which will be out hopefully next year? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're just talking about, you know, molecular gastronomy. This is one of my favorites. This is uh, an oldie but a goodie. This is uh, Fran Adria. This is a book from when he crossed terrains from restaurateur and chef into the drawing center in New York. And this is called Notes on Creativity. And it's amazing to imagine Farhan as chef, artist, radically curious advocate. Some of the language and ways he articulates his practice of curiosity is, is quite beautiful in this book. And then of course, as we're all suspended uh, during the uh, time of COVID, uh, the No School Manifesto. I've been reading a great deal about some of the more, uh, the unlearning movement and uh, different voices who are uh, advocating for reframing our institutional dependency on learning. And of course, as we couldn't go anywhere, you know, there's always the go-to uh, Jenny O'Dell. I need to get that one on the show. Well, uh, uh, Seth Goldenberg, time traveler. There's a lot of stuff on time travel in your book. We do, we've been doing some time traveling in this show, imagining uh, your book, Radical Curiosity, out next year. Much luck, Seth, on the writing of the book. And uh, again, I appreciate your bravery and honesty in coming on the show. And we'll have you back on when the book's out. Thank you so much. A delight. Thanks so much for having me.